0: just give away and don't expect anything in return and when you do that with people that haven't been trusted the interesting thing happens is they give back and they start to support you and they start to love you
1: i'm michael tamblin ceo of the global e store Rackton kobo we have a regular procession of authors who visit the kobo offices and while they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, their creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Cobo in Conversation. My guest today is Jesse Thistle. He's an assistant professor of Métis Studies at York University in Toronto. He is a Pierre Elliott Trudeau scholar, a Vanier scholar, and is the resident scholar in Indigenous homelessness at the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness. But beyond his research, he has a deep understanding of homelessness and addiction that comes from his own experiences on the streets, in shelters, prison, and rehab. His journey from childhood to school to addiction, almost death, and then back to life, is the story we'll hear about today. As we do on Coburn Conversation, we'll ask him about books from his childhood and books that influenced his writing, and we'll talk about the creation of his own book. From the Ashes, My Story of Being Métis, Homeless, and Finding My Way, published by Simon & Schuster Canada. Jesse Thistle, welcome to Kobo. Hi, thank you. You open your book with a beautiful scene. Your grandmother, yourself as a young child, and picking Saskatoon berries. Why was that the first thing you wanted us to see?
0: I wanted to uh, highlight what it looked like for me as a Métis or a Machief child within the web of all my relations. So the way that my grandmother was taking me out onto the land, showing me where we harvested berries from, how she had a relationship with not only the, the berries and everything around her, but also the insects. And she's just like trying to tell me as an indigenous child, this is our worldview, right? This is the way that we see and interact with the world. And also because that's what was lost, right? my family fell apart so I really wanted to show them also to highlight the history of my people like they lived on the side of the road in what's called road allowances and this is like a product of Canadian colonization we stood up against the government and became dispossessed and lived on public land as squatters.
1: This was a term that I'd never heard before but road allowance Métis communities are something that you've studied and you've spent time looking at.
0: Oh yeah, I do that as a, that's what I do in my with my other hat. I'm an assistant professor of mm-hmm. Métis history, and so I look at the formation of these settle these settlements on the sides of the roads that really started in like the 1900s, early 1900s, all the way up until 19 my generation. You know, 1970s. That's when they kind of fell apart. And
1: your book <coughs> is it's a hard one to read. Sometimes there is loss of family. There's a hard road of addiction, and homelessness, disconnection, prison, and I want to talk about that in a bit, but over time you've come to see this as something that's rooted in history, in Métis history and the displacement of the Métis people. For our listeners that aren't from Canada, and you know, frankly even for some that are, can you provide a bit of historical perspective about what happened to the Métis people and how that's form some of the
0: the underpinning for this story. Sure, so Canada has a long fur trading history. European traders came over men and they they interacted with mainly First Nations women. That was who had connections into the fur trade communities where the furs came from. They intermarried for generations and their children intermarried and mixed. And so you have like a wholly mixed community of European half-First Nations, their children, had what's called an ethnogenesis, or so a rise of their own culture, a rise of their own nation, nationhood, and consciousness as a people. And we were very prosperous middlemen all the way up until what's called the transference of Rupert's Land in 1869. And so England sold Rupert's Land to uh, the Dominion of Canada and didn't consult with uh, the First Nations or Métis people that were in the, the territory. We were living there at that, the time. Right. It's so, they stood up and fought against the canadian government under louis riel and the leadership of gabriel dumont during the second resistance so there were two resistances the first one created the province of manitoba in 1870 it was supposed to be a a place where metis people could live peaceably and practice their culture and language and everything like that canada did not honor the terms of uh, the manitoba act so we moved west to saskatchewan and we rose up again when the Canadian government expanded the state out to Saskatchewan and so we stood up in 1885, tried to fight, and we lost terribly. So with that came the extinguishment of the bison, the loss of our mobility patterns over land, our kin networks that were stretched out across all of Western Canada and the northern part of the United States. And a great impoverishment came from that. We went from like the highest prosperous uh, middleman in the fur trade to basically landless paupers overnight. And refugees. And refugees within Canada. And so we came to live on the sides of the roads, and we lived like that for 100 years, all the way up until my mom's generation and and my generation. That's where the first chapter kind of comes in, and I show you what it actually looked like on one of these road allowances.
1: And those, those road allowances then were the only places that Métis people were
0: allowed to live after their land was taken away from them. Basically, yeah, because we didn't have uh, paper treaties like First Nations did, and we couldn't participate in the settler economy, base- basically, because their racism was really deep out west. Uh, you see some traces of it here in Ontario, but out west, it was really, really marked, almost like the American South.
1: And so that disruption and that displacement and the uh, the impacts on the people that went through that, you describe that experience as being similar in some ways to what children of Holocaust survivors. Have experienced. So what kinds of challenges got handed down to your own parents from that legacy?
0: Okay so there was a loss of like roles like men lost we're supposed to be the protectors and hunters and all these our roles in our societies were lost and and so that created like a deep trauma for men, indigenous men, Métis men. Also the women they lost a lot of their standing because they were like the the economy they used to process the bison and we'd sell that to the fur trade companies. And so our roles just switched overnight. And so that was traumatic in itself. We have battle trauma from going through battle, like it was a war-torn situation that happened. Mm -hmm. Then you have the deep poverty of like the 1910s, 20s, 30s, and it it just got worse up and through, through the Depression. And so that created multiple layers of trauma that created social dysfunction within Métis society. Over time, things like addictions, uh, misogyny, you know, abandonment started to take root. And by my time my parents had me, these issues were like rampant and our communities actually fell apart. And so that's how that's transferred over time.
1: And so when the book begins, we're really seeing you and your brothers who are like, they're like this team, like a three-person survival <laughs> unit. Tell us about what you and your brothers were like as little kids.
0: Well, Josh was our leader he was the oldest and he was the smartest that everybody loved and listened to and then Jerry was kind of like the little older s- brothers are so annoying yeah <laughs> the middle brother <laughs> older than me he would kind of boss me around and then I was kind of like the expendable warrior I had to do like the bidding of all of them and well had our own personalities but we stuck together as a well coordinated team and we they taught me to steal and my dad wasn't around you know we did all kinds of things together like they protected me and I tried my best to like serve them, I guess.
1: Your mother was the first of your parents to disappear from your life. Can you talk a little bit about the circumstances under which that happened?
0: Yeah, I think my mom had us when she was really young and uh, she got overwhelmed and my dad made her a lot of false promises and he wasn't the best husband. He had a lot of addictions, problems with violence, and so I think she just got overwhelmed and she was tired and she was trying her best and my dad showed up one day and promised her the world and that he would take care of us and to give her a break. She would only been about 20 years old so she took that break yeah. and so when she left like our world kind of fell apart because dad had some serious addiction problems and he didn't honor his word at all and it led to some really tragic situations where we saw him, like I saw him shoot up. He, he would leave us alone for days on end. We just didn't have any food. So for me, I don't blame my mother because I know both sides of the story now, but yeah. like, I completely understand why she did what she did.
1: And you were removed from your dad's home by family services. How old were you when that happened? Three and a half years old. That would have been three and a half. But still some very vivid memories around that.
0: Yeah, so I remember the vent. I was inside where they got us from inside of a vent and I asked my brothers about it and they, Jerry described us going in the vent and like just I saw a therapist and started to talk about like actually what had happened. And so these memories like they bubble to the surface as I'm writing these things, right? Yeah. And like it kept me up at night and just I've been talking with people and family members and going over court, some records from child services, I saw some some references to it, and so that's where the stories come from, right? And so strange to see yourself referred to in the third person in some official report. It is, yeah, and like one of the reports said like there was a neighbor that called uh, child services because the children were left alone periodically. So that means like it happened a lot for someone to notice, right? Like you don't notice what your neighbor's doing unless they're doing it a lot. So he must have been doing that quite a bit, more than I can even remember. You know, I remember us being taken out of his care and that's it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, to see these documents kind of uh, illuminate it really opened my eyes to what happened.
1: Did your dad try to find you after you were taken away?
0: Well, we have two competing stories, right, it has been passed down in my family. One is that he robbed a store and then lost us to uh, child services. Uh, The other is that we were taken into custody by the police, and then we ended up, he left us there, and they asked him, do you want the kids back? And he said, no, they're better off there. So these two competing narratives from my aunts and my uncles, I don't know, I was just three and a half years old, and we were never really told the truth by my grandparents about what happened with him.
1: So you get sent to Brampton, Ontario to live with your dad's parents, and they become really formative figures in your life in a lot of ways.
0: Can you describe them for me? I love my grandparents very much. I love my, my grandfather was a hard-working, no-nonsense Cape Bretoner, uh, who believed in work. That's what he really believed in. That was, his, if he had a religion, it was work. And he lost his father during the depression and he had to work at like six, seven years old as a man in the coal mines out on the dory fishing like a grown man cutting wood. And he described childhood ending at five. He did. And- and then became an adult. That's right, and he just became, so he didn't really understand, I think, what childhood was about because he just never had one. And my grandmother, I don't mention in the book, but her father went through residential schools, and so there was a lot of dysfunction in her side. So when the two of them met, you know, they, they, they loved us and they tried to raise us, but they were dealing with their own trauma, right? And so I tried to portray that. They're flawed figures, they're disciplinarians, but they're also people of their time the 80s. You know, people disciplined their kids. It was normal. So, you know, and that's the way I looked at it and I wrote that out. So,
1: And he also tried to give you that sense of work ethic that had powered him through uh, yes. his own life.
0: Yeah, he trained me up on like power tools at like a young age from five all the way up. And like Lucy, my wife, she's like, you can work every tool. How do you know this? I say, well, in childhood, when you learn how to use a skill saw on a drill and Just comes like second nature,
1: right? As a parent, seeing the scene of you working a skill saw at five years old kind of
0: had my heart in my mouth. Yeah. Oh, I think about it now, I'm like, what was he thinking, you know? But like that's the way he was raised, I guess, right? So
1: For a while things are okay and then you start to have troubles of your own. In the book we see you starting to turn away from school, from your family. Was that a slow process or was there a particular event that gonna kind of push you in one direction?
0: I remember watching the other kids go to like classes, like, uh, I don't know, like hockey with their dads. My grandfather was old and he didn't have the energy, so I, tra- I saw it as like he didn't love me. But really the truth of it is probably like he just didn't have the energy. You know, and he was just trying to get through. He'd lost his son, my dad disappeared in 1982 and so he was damaged. And I really think that they looked at us kind of like waiting for their son to return, but also there's probably a little bit of resentment there for like being left with these kids. And so they acted through that uh, lexicon and what that did is it turned me away really from my family because I started to search outward and living out a lot of things that I had heard of my, about my dad from my grandfather, I started living that out myself. I started lying, I started stealing, I started acting out. And I didn't know who I was as an indigenous person or kid and I would get beat up at school and they'd make war-whoop noises and all kinds of stuff. So I was just really confused and angry as a, as a young boy I'd fought all the time. And that translated into experimentations with drugs by the time I was young, 15, 16 years old. And it, because I had all this trauma from my experiences and also the different lines of my family, It really just took me down this fast slope. And I grew up in the time of the the raves, right? And drugs were really readily available back then. I don't know what it is now. Kids probably don't even go to raves anymore. But I got into it pretty hardcore. And so by the time I was in it, it was already over.
1: And so when you finally left home, were drugs the cause or just the accelerator?
0: I'd say trauma was the cause. And I was trying to self-medicate with the drugs, and my grandparents were no-nonsense. My dad had gone missing because of drugs in their head, and they caught me with coke. And I'd broken a girl's heart that they really liked that I was going out with. And so the, two, the dual things that ha- happened so close together the same night that they just kicked me out, and there was no going back. My grandfather was very hard-line about where that line in our family was, and I crossed it. And, you know, I just could never go back home again. As
1: your challenges start to multiply, coming from that trauma compounded by addiction and then homelessness, one thing that I think it's hard for people who haven't struggled with addiction to understand, how much self-awareness do you have while it's happening? You know, as things are getting worse, do you know how much worse it's getting? Um, Do you know you're crossing lines that you haven't crossed before? You know, are you kind of... Yeah, you know, are you seeing those stages of addiction zipping past you or are you just in it at the time?
0: Yeah, you're, I'm just in it. You're just and I tried to put the reader through that as it's happening, step by step like it just got out of control and it seems like it's really fast, but it's actually a progression, mm-hmm. right? It's like you're boiling the frog in the water and you don't realize the water's boiling. And that's what it felt like. It right? was
1: there wasn't any point in that in that story as I was reading it where I felt like okay, didn't used to be bad, and now it's bad. It was just like a steady, steady slide.
0: Right, right, and I think that's the way most addicts experience their addiction, you know?
1: And so what was the bottom for you in this story?
0: The bottom for me? Well, the bottom for me was when I fell out of the window, really, it was when I, like, shattered my right leg and had that surgery and it got really infected, and then I robbed a store fearful that I was, like, gonna lose my leg on a lot of drugs and I don't know if I was even thinking straight and you were trying to get into prison to get to save medical care essentially right yeah and so that I would say the actual robbery would be the the lowest point sitting in the dumpster after I'd done it and and wondering like hearing the helicopters and the dogs or whatever was going on and like just realizing like I'm totally out of control and I'm like gonna die if this continues so at one point you end up in prison, and for me as a
1: as a reader following your story, it's almost a relief. You know, it's like yes. a break in the action. You meet some people inside who pass you some lessons, and there's some really interesting yeah. people there. Can you talk a bit about Priest and Bucky and, uh, and Loriston and what you learned from them?
0: Yeah, Loriston was my cellmate, an old guy, and uh, he taught me the value of like sharing and giving. Oddly, in prison, right? Like, or not, I went to provincial jail. I wasn't prison. So uh, just to make that clear, if there are any people in prison listening, I was in jail. And so he would get like all these sugar packages. We'd get them in our things, uh, in our trays, and he would trade for these sugar packages and give away. And he just kept getting more and more of them. And like, he told me about like, just give away, you know, and don't expect anything in return. You know, and when you do that with people that haven't been trusted, the interesting thing happens is they give back and they start to support you and they start to love you. And you tried it and it worked. It worked. As priest gave me his sandal. I had my foot was all infected. And on the bottom, he, he carved the Star of David. He was like a Rasta guy, right? And so that was part of his belief system. And so when I went in to the shower, I could wear these sandals and not get my foot infected. Like he was watching me, right? He might not have been nice to me until I started giving away my potatoes and my cereal and stuff. But when I did that, they just opened up and helped me. I took that lesson with me from jail like that, from that time forward. It was in jail that you also started to
1: look at school again. What drew you back to the idea that reading and studying was something you wanted to do?
0: I remember watching a guy at the back of the range, and he was just passing his time like what we call a gentleman. Didn't bother anybody, stuck to his own, he didn't gamble, he didn't like trade chocolate bars or nothing, he was just all about doing his time in the quietest possible way. And I kind of was at the end of my rope, I didn't have any other things or solutions to how crappy my life was and I thought maybe I can improve myself and maybe pass my time a little better doing that and so, through the chaplain's office, I applied to get my GED, and I started teaching myself to read and got help from my cellmates, and that was, like, the beginning. It's actually called the dawn of the Bronze Age because the Stone Age is like smoking crack stones, right? And so that's the the dawn of the Bronze Age when things start to change. And you are good? Yeah, yeah.
1: Your brother, your mother both said at different times that they were trying to keep track of you and that was not an easy thing to do did you know that you were hard to find did you know that you were hiding
0: no while it was happening I was very resentful I thought like the world had abandoned me and I was always on to the next place always on you know I was in and out of jails in and out of like police station bullpens you know wherever I ended up on people's couches I didn't really think about how it was for other people to try and watch and take care of me. I was just always on to the next place, always on to the next fix, you mm-hmm. know, and just living like that. It was like a tumbleweed, a human tumbleweed. That's what it felt like.
1: And at the same time, you were also looking for your dad in that I same was. way. And getting news about him was another turning point for you.
0: Yeah, uh, while I was writing the book, I actually started contemplate, contemplating, did I become an addict like him? Did I become homeless like he did? In an effort to find him, subconsciously, you to know, to be in
1: those places, to and be in, those be places in that where
0: life, could have happened, right? Because that's the life he had lived. And so, when I saw a guy at a shelter, this guy who was just out of prison, he told me that they got my dad, and like, way back in the eighties, and that you don't have to look anymore, basically. And I stopped looking in those places for him. He made it okay for me to just move on with my life, you know.
1: You get into treatment. And when you got out of that first phase of treatment, you got onto Facebook and all of a sudden people start reaching out to you. There were people out there who'd been looking, looking for you. Yeah. What was that like?
0: It was surreal. I didn't even know that, like, like I went under in 97. I came out in like 2009 is when I started my, the world and there's had there's a changed. lot
1: that had happened in that time.
0: Smartphones, and yeah. Facebook, yeah. all this stuff happened. And so the guys at the treatment, they said, set up this Facebook thing. And like, I was like, okay, I, whatever, I'll try it out. And as soon as I did that, I had like all these messages from people from my past, saying, hey, dude, I'm just happy you're alive, man. We, we all thought you were dead because you've been gone for so long. And so it made me feel loved. Like really, it made me feel like, like I was remembered, you know?
1: And as you're finishing rehab, you reconnect with a woman that you've known from your childhood. Yeah. Um, Tell me about Lucy.
0: Yeah, I went to grade school with her and she kinda hung out with like the cool kids. I was like a nerdy kid in, in like grade school and so she didn't really know who I was when I was young and then uh, the night I fell off the building, years later, like two decades later, she was at the party with her boyfriend and I was there with my girlfriend. She didn't remember me and I tried to like introduce myself and fast forward another year, or two, four years from that point on, when I'm coming out of rehab, my grandmother was passing away, the woman that raised me. When she died, the day that she died was the, the day that I did the Facebook, and she sent me, sorry, the Facebook all messed up that is, she sent me a, a request saying, like, I hope you don't fall off the wagon, and, like, just being nice to me, right, basically. Yeah. And so she was a, bro- a friend of my brother's, so that's how she remained in contact with me, and from there, we just... Started talking, and I started trying to impress her, and all the things that guys do to try and get girls. <laughs> I was trying to do. So you wrote poetry. I did. I That's did. a strong move. Yeah, and I had one hand. I had one arm was broken at the time, or wrist. My wrist was broken. I was typing poetry one-handed to her, and uh, it was hard. Poetry on its own <laughs> is hard.
1: Poetry one-handed, it's even harder. And she was the one, kind of with her hand on your back as you were getting into university
0: yeah yeah she was a mature student and uh, she always encouraged me to get my education along with my grandmother who passed away and so that kind of gave me the fuel to try and believe in myself and really give it my all and so i wanted to honor that and part of honoring my relationship with lucy was trying my best at school and like she walked me through the process she helped me apply for osap and all these different student loans and plan out my academic career, you know, she was kind of like an advisor too, right, Uh, along with being my uh, then fiancé, so.
1: One of the episodes in the book that really grabbed me was you're describing your first few minutes in your first class at your first day of university and that self-doubt hitting you all at once. You're now a distinguished scholar. You lecture about homelessness, about Métis history that self-doubt still there
0: every day every day it's all there i still look in the mirror and sometimes see that that guy that was on the street begging in rito on rito street in ottawa or stealing from the centennial flame on parliament Hill, scraping change into my pocket like i see that and there's people that remind me of that you know that who try to hurt me and there's also people that look past that, and I can see through their eyes that, hey, they see me as a scholar now. Maybe I am. Maybe I can do this, you know? And that gives me the energy and push I need to, like, be who I'm supposed to be, you know?
1: When you went to university, you called up your Aunt Yvonne, the -hmm. family historian. What did you learn from her, and how did that shape your research?
0: It changed, it was life-changing. It was, I phoned back to, I had an assignment to contextualize my my life within Canadian colonization and I phoned back to Saskatchewan and she had all this history already written and done, like pages and books and books of it. And so she just introduced me to it and she's like, you're from a long line of political leaders, activists, resistance fighters, chiefs, like a really rich history. Like, the, the road losses were just one part of that, right? And so when I looked at the longer history of my people I became really proud. I also understood my parents' actions, why they let us go. I understood what intergenerational trauma was and how it affected me. I was like the last scene in that movie of my family's history and all that chaos that I saw at the end that didn't make sense until I saw the, the rest of the movie before it. And she just gave me a perspective of who I was as a Métis Cree person.
1: Well, one of the things that I I loved about it was that while you'd gone through this personal transformation, now you were at university. The connection back to your family was almost the first thing that happened, and you know it wasn't it wasn't you turning into a different person. It was you becoming more of your own person.
0: Yeah, because if you really look at the arc of the story and what happened to me, it's the stripping away of my indigeneity that got me so sick. And so when I went back to university. It was being reintroduced to my culture, being reintroduced to my family, my indigenous family, that kind of made me well again, that made me, like, sure of who I was as a person so that I could help other people. So I know educational institutions like residential schools stripped away indigeneity. I went to school to get my indigeneity. It's the opposite for me, so it's kind of a cool process.
1: So tell me a bit about your academic work now. What are you working on?
0: I'm working on reconstituting my family's road allowance in historical documents. So I'm looking at our history from 1900 to 1970. Looking at how they formed and then how they fell apart by my generation and really tracing that through like court records, newspapers, social welfare documents. We, don't, we didn't have indigenous affairs like First Nations did so we mm-hmm. have to look at it from a bunch of like desperate different sources. Right. And that's what I do.
1: So your academic career is really cooking. There's lots
0: happening there.
1: So when did you decide that you also wanted to write a book about your own life?
0: Well, what happened? The book happened by accident. And that's why it's kind of strange. So when I was coming out of rehab, they make you do what's called the fourth step in AA. So you have to go back to these memories Mm -hmm. where you either hurt people or people hurt you so that you can, like, understand what happened and try to come to terms with it and forgive, or be forgiven. And so I did this with all these different moments in my life and I collected them over time. And I just kind of like had this big pile and then that kind of morphed into this blog that I was doing. Alongside of that, I was doing all my schoolwork and getting really good grades and then I graduated. And in 2016, I won the top two doctoral scholarships in the country and the Toronto Star came to me and they said, we want to do a story on you, on your life. And I told them about all this homelessness and stuff. And they were like, wow, this is more remarkable than we thought. And so it came out. And when the story came out, there was an editor at Simon & Schuster, I mean, a uh, purchasing editor. I, I don't even know what her job mm. is. Adria is her name. Right. And she contacted me and she's like, your your life story is very remarkable. We, we're we interested in having you come in and just talk about the possibility of the book. And then what I did is I sent her the blog of all my four steps. When they read it, they're like, this is gonna make a great book and we'll help you form it into a longer arc. So it's kind of accidental. Everything happened accidentally and yeah, I just worked with good people and now we have a book out of it, so (laughs) What were formative books for you growing up? Old Man in the Sea, I remember reading that in like grade eight, grade nine, a long time ago. And just the simplicity of the writing it was beautiful. It's almost like a Japanese garden, like the way he writes. He uses the fewest amount of words, yep. creates the most vivid scenes. As well, it's f- philosophical. Even though I could barely read, I wasn't a very good reader in school, but I connected with that book. I remember that very specifically.
1: It's super stripped down.
0: It's down to the essentials. Yeah, and uh, direct. It's clean writing. You know, mm-hmm. it's-
1: and what were the books that were most formative for you, as you were starting to think about being a writer?
0: Amanda Lindhouse, she wrote a memoir, I read that. I was on vacation with my wife in Cuba and I just sat on the, the beach and read that right through and like her harrowing story kind of captured me and I, I read uh, Candide by Voltaire, this long arc of, again it's kind of a simple story but it's very philosophical in nature and it's it's about like coming back to yourself and making the best of your life and so those two kind of influenced me the most mm-hmm. before I set to write.
1: And then you're a Sopranos fan.
0: I am Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that infused bits of your writing as well.
0: It did like I was like my dialogue was horrible and I, I don't know if it's good now but Lucy's like you got to pretty good now. She's like you got to improve that like you know and so I asked around to people that were writers, I said, who writes the best dialogue? Where's the best dialogue come from? And they said, well, for TV, the best dialogue that ever came is Sopranos. And so I watched a lot of Sopranos and I saw how they were clipping their sentences and people kind of talk in staccato. They don't have these long flowy sentences. It's just one information after another. And so I tried to like emulate my memories Mm -hmm. into that kind of staccato writing.
1: And Charles Bukowski shows up in there
0: somewhere, yes, too. Yes, he does. He's just drunk on YouTube. I'm just, <laughs> like, googling, like, poets and people that emulate, and the, everybody says he was the best person for dialogue again. And I came across this interview he was doing with this, like, Dutch guy or guy from Belgium. He was talking about, like, writing with pace and, and story. And he's like, you know, it has to have pace. It has to be bim, bim, bim. He's ripped. He's totally drunk, Right. But I can see he's talking honestly. And then I read a couple books and I saw what he was talking about. He was like, these long flowing sentences, they don't make people interested. It's the fast paced staccato writing. And so I did that with the length of my chapters as well as the the writing style. It's very simple, clean, fast writing.
1: You mentioned near the end that you talked to a lot of people as you were putting this book together to get the story right, to confirm your memories and events that happened. Was going back and revisiting all of that a tough process?
0: Yeah, it was very hard. I had to see a therapist. I saw a therapist and there were like a lot of memories that I kind of remembered and then she walked me through the process of remembering and like coming to terms with what was actually happening. Like stealing with my brothers as a child. You know, and like it was okay because I was trying to protect myself. She told me about that and then like looking at certain court documents, my arrest record, like the whole core of the middle of the book is actually me just doing a chronology of my arrest record and like how horrible it actually was and so going back was very traumatic and my wife would sit with me every night and rub my back and make sure I was okay and I started smoking cigars you know and like that was kind of my meditative thing and they're not bad if you don't abuse them like they can get out of you know if you're smoking one a day or whatever but That was my process and how I dealt with the trauma. Was there anything from that
1: material or those conversations that you were having that surprised you? Anything that you'd remembered it completely differently or you learned something that kind of surfaced in the course of going through that primary material?
0: Oh yeah, there was a lot of them. Like The memories of me and my brothers, because we were told alternate stories when we were growing up. And then when I started speaking with my uncles... And the truth started to come out and I started speaking with my mother and she had a different perspective on it and so I remembered it completely different than what had happened. We ended up at my grandparents, I kind of vaguely remember that kind of stuff and then we're just there. And so I got all those backstories from my, my elders and then I, you know, so it really changed my perspective. There's a club scene in there that's pretty traumatic that I didn't remember at all until I started talking with my therapist, and then that came out, and I'm like, oh yeah, that explains a lot of a lot of like shame that I had, and I stopped going to clubs and raves after that, and so, just a lot of things like that, right? And there's probably a lot that I don't remember even now. Like, I was using a lot of drugs and alcohol, and so I don't know what that did to my brain over time, right, so.
1: This book, it's a roller coaster. There are places where, in the middle of a lot of hardship, Things click into place, when you start to get interested in school again, when you get your GED, getting into Harvest House, the the Last Chance (coughs) Rehab Center in Ottawa, your wife pushing you into university. And then on the flip side, there are so many times that it could have just all been over. The fall that broke your foot and could have killed you, guns to your head, drugs and sickness and infection on the street. When you put all of that together in one place, in one book, Did you learn anything new from that?
0: Yeah, I learned about love, actually, and the importance of human connection. And I saw, like, all the way through my life, at those most harrowing moments, there were moments of human connection that kept me going. Like when I fell, the doctors that were attending to me were joking with me, right? I remember that. They were trying to keep me awake because if I fell asleep and I had, like, internal bleeding, I could have died. I didn't know that then, but I do remember them cracking jokes with me. And so like just to take that time or when I was stealing from the Chinese market and the lady gave me what I was stealing and like that taught me not to steal. It's a bad thing. And like you're hurting good people when you do that. And so all through my life, there's these really traumatic things, but there were also these like moments of really intimate human connection and love that people were showing me. And a lot of these people were strangers, you know, and it really carried me through that darkness. So that's what I learned. Jesse Thistle, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.
1: Jesse Thistle's book, From the Ashes, My Story of Being Métis, Homeless, and Finding My Way, is published by Simon & Schuster Canada and available at www.cobo.com. You can get links to the books mentioned in this episode and find previous episodes as well at www.kobo.com slash conversation. Be sure to give us a rating and a review so people can find out how great this is. And also check out our sibling podcast, Kobo Writing Life, all about the nuts and bolts of making it as an independent author. See you soon.